Chapter 4 of the Suppression of the African Slave Trade to the United States of America, 1638 to 1870, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Kennedy. The Suppression of the African Slave Trade to the United States of America. 1638 to 1870 by W. E. B. Du Bois. Chapter 4 The Trading Colonies. Character of these colonies. The rigorous climate of New England, the character of her settlers, and their pronounced political view gave slavery an even slighter basis here than in the middle colonies. The significance of New England in the African slave trade does not therefore lie in the fact that she early discountenanced the system of slavery and stopped importation, but rather in the fact that her citizens, being the traders of the New World, early took part in the carrying slave trade and furnished slaves to the other colonies. An inquiry, therefore, into the efforts of the New England colonies to suppress the slave trade would fall naturally into two parts. First, and chiefly, an investigation of the efforts to stop the participation of citizens in the carrying slave trade, secondly, an examination of the effort made to banish the slave trade from New England soil. New England and the Slave Trade Vessels from Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, and to a less extent from New Hampshire were early and largely engaged in the carrying slave trade. We know, said Thomas Pemberton in 1795, that a large trade to Guinea was carried on for many years by the citizens of Massachusetts Colony, who were the proprietors of the vessels and their cargoes, out and home. Some of the slaves purchased in Guinea, and I suppose the greatest part of them, were sold in the West Indies. Dr. John Elliott asserted that, it made a considerable branch of our commerce. It declined very little till the revolution. Yet the trade of this colony was said not to equal that of Rhode Island. Newport was the mark for slaves offered for sale in the north, and a point of reshipment for all slaves. It was principally this trade that raised Newport to her commercial importance in the 18th century. Connecticut, too, was an important slave trader, sending large numbers of horses and other commodities to the West Indies in exchange for slaves, and selling the slaves in other colonies. This trade formed a perfect circle. Owners of slavers carried slaves to South Carolina and brought home naval stores for their shipbuilding, or to the West Indies and brought home molasses, or to other colonies and brought home hogsheads. The molasses was made into the highly prized New England rum, and shipped in these hogsheads to Africa for more slaves. Thus the rum distilling industry indicates to some extent the activity of New England in the slave trade. In May 1752, one Captain Freeman found so many slavers fitting out that, in spite of the large importation of molasses, he could get no rum for his vessel. In Newport alone, 22 stills were at one time running continuously. 
and Massachusetts annually distilled 15,000 hogsheads of molasses into this chief manufacture. Turning now to restrictive measures, we must first note the measures of the slave-consuming colonies which tended to limit the trade. These measures, however, come comparatively late, were enforced with varying degrees of efficiency, and did not seriously affect the slave trade before the Revolution. The moral sentiment of New England put some check upon the trade. Although in earlier times the most respectable people took ventures in slave-trading voyages, yet there gradually arose a moral sentiment which tended to make the business somewhat disreputable. In the line, however, of definite legal enactments to stop New England citizens from carrying slaves from Africa to any place in the world, there were, before the Revolution, none. Indeed, not until the years 1787 to 1788 was slave trading in itself an indictable offense in any New England state. The particular situation in each colony and the effort to restrict the small importing slave trade of New England can best be studied in a separate view of each community. Restrictions in New Hampshire The statistics of slavery in New Hampshire show how weak an institution it always was in that colony. Consequently, when the usual instructions were sent to Governor Wentworth as to the encouragement he must give to the slave trade, the House replied, We have considered His Majesty's instruction relating to an import on Negroes and felons, to which this House answers, that there never was any duties laid on either by this government, and so few brought in that it would not be worth the public notice, so as to make an act concerning them. This remained true for the whole history of the colony. Importation was never stopped by actual enactment, but was eventually declared contrary to the Constitution of 1784. The participation of citizens in the trade appears never to have been forbidden. Restrictions in Massachusetts The early biblical codes of Massachusetts confined slavery to lawful captives taken in just wares and such strangers as willingly sell themselves or are sold to us. The stern Puritanism of early days endeavored to carry this out literally, and consequently when a certain Captain Smith, about 1640, attacked an African village and brought some of the unoffending natives home, he was promptly arrested. Eventually, the general court ordered the Negroes sent home at the colony's expense conceiving themselves bound by ye first opportunity to bear witness against ye heinous and crying sin of man-stealing, as also to prescribe such timely redress for what is past and such a law for ye future, as may sufficiently deter all others belonging to us to have to do in such vile and most odious courses, justly aboard of all good and just men. The temptation of trade slowly forced the colony from this high moral ground. 
New England ships were early found in the West Indian slave trade. And the more the carrion trade developed, the more did the profits of this branch of it attract Puritan captains. By the beginning of the 18th century, the slave trade was openly recognized as legitimate commerce. Cargoes came regularly to Boston, and the merchants of Boston quoted Negroes like any other merchandise demanded by their correspondents. At the same time, the Puritan conscience began to rebel against the growth of actual slavery on New England soil. It was a much less violent wrenching of moral ideas of right and wrong to allow Massachusetts men to carry slaves to South Carolina than to allow cargoes to come into Boston and become slaves in Massachusetts. Early in the 18th century, therefore, opposition arose to the further importation of Negroes, and in 1705, an act for the better preventing of the spurious and mixed issue laid a restrictive duty of four pounds on all slaves imported. One provision of this act plainly illustrates the attitude of Massachusetts. Like the acts of many of the New England colonies, it allowed a rebate of the whole duty on re-exportation. The harbors of New England were thus offered as a free exchange mart for slavers. All the duty acts of the southern and middle colonies allowed a rebate of one-half or three-fourths of the duty in the re-exportation of the slave, thus laying a small tax on even temporary importation. The Act of 1705 was evaded, but it was not amended until 1728, when the penalty for evasion was raised to 100 pounds. The Act remained in force, except possibly for one period of four years, until 1749. Meantime, the movement against importation grew. A bill for preventing the importation of slaves into this province was introduced in the legislature in 1767, but after strong opposition and disagreement between House and Council, it was dropped. In 1771, the struggle was renewed. A similar bill passed, but was vetoed by Governor Hutchinson. The imminent war and the discussions incident to it had now more and more aroused public opinion, and there were repeated attempts to gain executive consent to a prohibitory law. In 1774, such a bill was twice passed, but never received assent. The new revolutionary government first met the subject in the case of two Negroes captured on the high seas, who were advertised for sale at Salem. A resolution was introduced into the legislature, directing the release of the Negroes and declaring that the selling and enslaving the human species is a direct violation of the natural rights alike vested in all men by their Creator, and utterly inconsistent with the avowed principle on which this and the other United States have carried their struggle for liberty even to the last appeal. To this the Council would not consent, and the resolution, as finally passed, merely forbade the sale or ill-treatment of the Negroes. Committees on the slavery questions were appointed in 1776 and 1777, 
and although a letter to Congress on the matter and a bill for the abolition of slavery were reported, no decisive action was taken. All such efforts were finally discontinued as the system was already practically extinct in Massachusetts and the custom of importation had nearly ceased. Slavery was eventually declared by judicial decision to have been abolished. The first step toward stopping the participation of Massachusetts citizens in the slave trade outside the state was taken in 1785, when a committee of inquiry was appointed by the legislature. No act was, however, passed until 1788, when participation in the trade was prohibited, on pain of £50 forfeit for every slave and £200 for every ship engaged. Restrictions in Rhode Island In 1652, Rhode Island passed a law designed to prohibit life slavery in the colony. It declared that, whereas there is a common course practice amongst Englishmen to buy niggers, to that end they may have them for service or slaves forever. For the preventage of such practices among us, let it be ordered that no black mankind or white being forced by covenant bond or otherwise to serve any man or his assignees longer than ten years or until they come to be twenty-four years of age if they be taken in under fourteen from the time of their coming within the liberties of this colony and at the end of term of ten years to set them free as the manner in with the english servants and that man that will not let them go free or shall sell them away elsewhere to that end that they may be enslaved to others for a long time he or they shall forfeit to the colonies forty pounds this law was for a time enforced but by the beginning of the eighteenth century it had either been repealed or become a dead letter for the act of seventeen o eight recognized perpetual slavery and laid an impost of three pounds on negroes imported this duty was really a tax on the transport trade and produced a steady income for twenty years from the year seventeen hundred on the citizens of this state engaged more and more in the carrying trade until rhode island became the greatest slave trader in america although she did not import many slaves for her own use she became the clearinghouse for the trade of other colonies. Governor Cranston, as early as 1708, reported that between 1698 and 1708, 103 vessels were built in the state, all of which were trading to the West Indies and the southern colonies. They took out lumber and brought back molasses, in most cases making a slave voyage in between. From this the trade grew. Samuel Hopkins, about 1770, was shocked at the state of the trade. More than 30 distilleries were running in the colony, and 150 vessels were in the slave trade. Rhode Island, said he, has been more deeply interested in the slave trade and has enslaved more Africans than any other colony in New England. Later in 1787, he wrote, the inhabitants of Rhode Island, especially those of Newport, 
have had by far the greater share in this traffic of all these United States. This trade in human species has been the first wheel of commerce in Newport, on which every other movement in business has chiefly depended. That town has been built up and flourished in times past at the expense of the blood, the liberty, and happiness of the poor Africans, and the inhabitants have lived on this, and by it have gotten most of their wealth and riches. The Act of 1708 was poorly enforced. The good intentions of its framers were wholly frustrated by the clandestine hiding and conveying said Negroes out of the town, Newport, into the country, where they lie concealed. The Act was accordingly strengthened by the Acts of 1712 and 1715, and made to apply to importations by land as well as by sea. The Act of 1715, however, favored the trade by admitting African Negroes free of duty. The chaotic state of Rhode Island did not allow England often to review her legislation, but as soon as the Act of 1712 came to notice, it was disallowed, and accordingly repealed in 1732. Whether the Act of 1715 remained, or whether any other duty act was passed, is not clear. While the foreign trade was flourishing, the influence of the Friends and of other causes eventually led to a movement against slavery as a local institution. Abolition societies multiplied, and in 1770 an abolition bill was ordered by the Assembly, but it was never passed. Four years later the city of Providence resolved that, as personal liberty is an essential part of the natural rights of mankind, the importation of slaves and the system of slavery should cease in the colony. This movement finally resulted in 1774 in an act prohibiting the importation of Negroes into this colony, a law which curiously illustrated the attitude of Rhode Island toward the slave trade. The preamble of the act declared, whereas the inhabitants of America are generally engaged in the preservation of their own rights and liberties, among which that of personal freedom must be considered as the greatest, as those who are desirous of enjoying all the advantages of liberty themselves should be willing to extend personal liberty to others. Therefore, etc., the statute then proceeds to enact that for the future no Negro or mulatto slave shall be brought into this colony, and in case any slave shall hereafter be brought in, he or she shall be, and are hereby, rendered immediately free. The logical ending of such an act would have been a clause prohibiting the participation of Rhode Island citizens in the slave trade. Not only was such a clause omitted, but the following was inserted instead, provided also that nothing in this act shall extend or be deemed to extend to any Negro or mulatto slave brought from the coast of Africa into the West Indies on board any vessel belonging to this colony, and which Negro or mulatto slave could not be disposed of in the West Indies, 
but shall be brought into this colony, provided that the owner of such negro or mulatto slave give bond that such negro or mulatto slave shall be exported out of the colony within one year from the date of such bond. If such negro or mulatto be alive and in a condition to be removed. In 1779, an act to prevent the sale of slaves out of the state was passed, and in 1784, an act gradually to abolish slavery. Not until 1787 did an act pass to forbid participation in the slave trade. This law laid a penalty of 100 pounds for every slave transported and 1,000 pounds for every vessel so engaged. Restrictions in Connecticut Connecticut, in common with the other colonies of this section, had a trade for many years with the West Indian slave market. And though this trade was much smaller than that of the neighboring colonies, yet many of her citizens were engaged in it. A map of Middletown at the time of the Revolution gives, among 100 families, three slave captains and three notables, designated as slave dealers. The actual importation was small and almost entirely unrestricted before the Revolution, save by a few light general duty acts. In 1774, the further importation of slaves was prohibited because the increase of slaves in this colony is injurious to the poor and inconvenient. The law prohibited importation under any pretext by a penalty of 100 pounds per slave. This was reenacted in 1784 and provisions were made for the abolition of slavery. In 1788, participation in the trade was forbidden and the penalty placed at 50 pounds for each slave and 500 pounds for each ship engaged. General character of these restrictions. Enough has already been said to show, in the main, the character of the opposition to the slave trade in New England. The system of slavery had, on this soil and amid these surroundings, no economic justification, and the small number of Negroes here furnished no political arguments against them. The opposition to the importation was therefore from the first based solely on moral grounds, with some social arguments. As to the carrion trade, however, the case was different. Here too, a feeble moral opposition was early aroused, but it was swept away by the immense economic advantages of the slave traffic to a thrifty seafaring community of traders. This trade, no moral suasion, not even the strong liberty cry of the revolution, was able wholly to suppress until the closing of the West Indian and Southern markets cut off the demand for slaves. End of chapter 4